Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined with them the time, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him back, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The Lord's word. Good morning, everybody. And I asked Sean if he would play this song, O Come All Ye Faithful, so that we could sing that chorus, Come Let Us Adore Him. Because the story of the Magi gives one central implication for us. You either come and worship or you don't. That's Christmas. Will you come and not just celebrate him? Will you come and not just acknowledge him? Will you come and not just uh, lay your life next to his? Will you come and lay down before him and worship him? That's the question of Christmas. Will you worship the Christ? In our family, one of the traditions we have is we have a lot of Christmas parties. I don't know if you guys have this, but we have like four or five evening, Friday night Christmas parties in our family. And one of the other traditions is we always take little prop bets before we get there on who's going to be there and who's not going to be there. And always, every year, there's somebody that you did not expect or did not know or did not know you were related to who ends up at these parties. And uh, we've got long shots, we've got dark horses, we've got moon shots, we've got the most unlikely person to be there that we are always wondering if that person is going to be there. And you probably know when you go to these things, you get in the car and you're doing the family trees in your head before you get there, you know, you're rehearsing, okay, how is this person related to this person? Oh, they're, they're, that's their daughter? Okay. And you're trying to make sure that you know how everything is going to play out when you get there. And sure enough, this year, we were blown away by some of the people that were at these parties. Never met them before, didn't know them. Some of them were related. Some of them weren't. They were just there for a Christmas party. And that's one of the things that makes Christmas parties fun, is the surprise of meeting the same people you've seen every year and meeting new people. And Jesus' birth is one of those kinds of parties. There's the people that you would expect to be there, Mary, Joseph, although a little bit before this, you might not have expected both of them to be there. But then you have unexpected people there, like shepherds, who were the lowest of the low. They would not have been invited to any party. But one of the most unlikely people to be there is the Magi. These are people that no one would have had on their list of people that might show up 
at Jesus' birth. In fact, they come after Jesus' birth, right? So this is where you don't want to be the pedantic person in the nativity scenes, but you should really put the magi across the room or maybe in another room because they come later. They've been following this star. They come to Jesus when he's in a house with Mary and Joseph, and they come to worship him. No one would have expected these people to be there. It's become such a familiar part of our Christmas story that you have angels, you have shepherds, you have the manger, you've got the magi. But for them, magi from the east coming to worship this baby in this insignificant town? I mean, think about this. If God had not come to Mary or to Joseph, we would never have heard of them. They weren't royalty. They weren't prominent. They weren't wealthy. They weren't influential. They were from a nowhere town with no reputation. And God decides to bless them with the Christ child. And beyond that, they're visited by this strange group of wise men. So I want to go back and look at who the Magi are this morning, maybe to bring a little bit of perspective on what the Magi show us about who Jesus came for, who Jesus came for. And uh, you need to understand a little bit of the background of the Magi and a little bit of the background of what Matthew's doing to see what we're supposed to learn from the Magi. So first of all, in Matthew's gospel, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Joseph, he isn't just telling these stories because they happened in history. He's telling these stories so that you and I can look at them and learn something from them. Matthew is the gospel of exemplars. You see a person like Joseph, and you see the transformation that takes place from doing what he thought was right to obeying what God was calling him to do, even when it was difficult. The next exemplars in the book of Matthew are the Magi. They are people that we're supposed to watch and say, what did they do? And how can we learn to do what they did? The first thing the Magi teaches is that Christ came for outsiders. Christ came for outsiders. Now, you mention kings, three kings, at Christmas, it's almost like you feel a song coming on, which I'm not going to turn this into a musical. You know the song. But the We Three Kings, I've said this before, is a wonderful song, but horribly historically inaccurate. First of all, there were probably not three of them. There was probably a whole entourage. Second of all, they're not kings. They are wise men. And third of all, they're not from the Orient in East Asia. They're from the Middle East. Other than that, great song. Awesome Christmas song. The Magi, we we know a little bit about their background. They are kind of mysterious, but the first thing we find out about them, just because of the way they're described, is they're Gentiles. They are not Jews. They are from the people outside of God's covenant people in Israel. So it's odd, first of all, that you have some of the welcoming vanguard for the, the Christ child to be not from God's chosen people, not from his covenant people, not from the religiously clean people, not even from the God-fearing people next to the Jews, from pagan Gentile kingdoms who come to meet the Christ. The Magi were Gentiles as in Persia or Babylon, the kingdoms that had conquered Israel in the past. These were not people just from some unknown nation. These were people from enemy nations. They probably came either from the court of Babylon or Persia. They had been a part of, historically, the nations that had exiled and tormented and stolen from the people of Israel. These were enemies in every sense of the word. But they stand in contrast to the insiders. The insiders would be represented by people like Herod 
or the scribes and the chief priests. So what happens is the Magi are coming and they're following a star and it leads them to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital of the region of Judea. They go to Herod and it lets you know what an incredible entourage this must have been that they walk right into Herod's palace and have a word with Herod himself about the Christ child. Now, you need to know a little bit about Herod's background to see the contrast that Matthew is painting for us. Herod is an insider. His title is King of the Jews. But Herod was not born King of the Jews. See, the Magi, they come and they say, where is this one who is born King of the Jews? That was deeply unsettling for Herod. Herod had what we might call insecurities. He had bought the title king of the Jews. In fact, there are few characters in Scripture that are more interesting in their background than Herod. He was truly a man of his times. Through cunning and brutality, through bravery, and most of all, bribery, Herod became a master of the Middle Eastern part of the Roman Empire. He had been friends and had become acquainted with Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar was conquering and becoming the emperor of Rome, one of the pivotal spots in the ancient world is the corridor that runs on the east side of the Mediterranean. It's what gets you from the Roman and Greek part of the Roman Empire down to Egypt and what takes you into the eastern kingdoms of Persia and Babylon. It is a very rich and very central spot for travel. So Julius Caesar is looking for someone who can keep the peace raise taxes, and make sure that there's a buffer between any foreign empire and the Roman Empire. And because of his brutality and his bravery, he picks Herod. So Herod is a military commander, and he is putting down rebellions. He is fighting off foreign tribes. He is exacting taxes so that he can bribe people in Rome. And uh, by the time of Augustus, who, who is the emperor after Julius Caesar, Augustus really didn't like Herod but he was a necessary figure. In fact, Augustus is recorded as saying, I would much rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Now, the reason he said that is because, you know, the Jews didn't eat pigs. So pigs were very safe in Judea. But Herod had multiple sons and wives killed because he was insecure that they might take away his throne. Not a good guy. Every Jew would have lived in fear of Herod. He was not only the military leader of the country, he was not only the uh, strategic leader of the country, he was also involved as a religious leader in the country. And in fact, one of the things you would have known about Herod is that his ruthlessness extended not only to the military realm, but to the religious realm as well. In fact, when he was a young man, there was a tribe at that time named the Parthians, And they had attacked Jerusalem and kidnapped Herod's brother. And Herod fled with his family and his mother and a small small band of men with him. And they were being pursued as they were going out of Jerusalem towards the town of Bethlehem. And when they got about midway there, they were overtaken because the cart that was carrying Herod's mother had overturned. And so they had to stop. And as this band descended on them, Herod and this small group of men fought hand to hand to repel the Parthians away from them. Well, later in his life, Herod comes back to that exact spot. There's a big mountain right outside of Bethlehem. And Herod hollows out the mountain and builds walls that are hundreds of feet high. And he builds a fortress called the Herodian. The Herodian 
is a marvel of ancient architecture. You could stay in there with a hundred soldiers for years at a time. This was Herod's psyche. This is where I was attacked. This is where I'm going to make it known. Nobody attacks Herod and gets away with it. The interesting thing about the Herodian, as the sun sets, the Herodian is close enough that the shadow of the Herodian falls right towards the little town of Bethlehem. In fact, you might say that Jesus was born in the shadow of Herod's power. Now, in this story, Herod is in Jerusalem, and from the Herodian, you can see the temple in Jerusalem, right? These places are not very far apart. It would be considered a suburb now. Bethlehem has fields in between it and Jerusalem where the sacrificial lambs were raised for the temple sacrifices on Passover. And Herod is wondering, how is it that on the outskirts of town, in the shadow of my fortress, the Herodian, someone has the gall to call themselves the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. See, Jesus is a very unsettling figure. We see that not just in Herod's life, we see that in the Magi as well. The problem for both of them is Jesus is threatening the existing order. And the question for us is not, is he threatening? He is. He claims to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. If you read to the end of the Bible, he says he is going to reign forever and ever. There is going to be a judgment, and if you are with him, you will enter into paradise, and if you are against him, you will undergo torment and destruction. And so you either have to take him at his word or call him a liar, but you have to deal with him somehow. And Herod decides to deal with him by trying to stamp him out. But the Magi take a different route, partly because the Magi are outsiders. They're threatened in a different way. Herod is threatened because everything that he has built up for himself might come crashing down by this king of the Jews. But for the Magi, everything that they have been longing for might just come true. What's interesting in this story is that Herod is so threatened, so insecure, he doesn't even go to Bethlehem. Have you thought about this? So these magi come into Jerusalem and they say, hey, there's a star, cosmic event. We came all the way from the east looking for the king of the Jews. And he says, where, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And so he calls these scribes, these religious guys, these are like the PhD seminary guys. And they come in and they're like, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And I think we're supposed to take this a little bit comically because he says, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? I say, well, of course in Bethlehem. And he's like, okay. And it's like, why do you ask? You know, no one decides, maybe we should go there. Maybe we should see the Christ. But instead, they say, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And the matter say, well, we're going. And nobody else goes. Herod doesn't go. The scribes don't go. The Pharisees don't go. The religious leaders, the high priests, they don't go. But the Gentiles go. The sinners go. One of the lessons of the Magi is the outsiders sometimes see the need for what Christ came to fill. Christ came for the people who don't feel good enough, who don't measure up, who haven't been included, who haven't felt like they've connected with God. It's, it's not them making the first step to God. It's God making the first step to them. God invited the Magi to come and see the Christ child. The other thing we learned from the Magi is that they were wanderers. Christ came for the wanderers. There's something about these wise men that connects from the very beginning of the Bible, and it's that they come from the east. This seems like a very trivial little detail. Wise men 
from the east. But if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God has had an interest in the east from the very opening pages of Scripture. You remember when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they go to the east of Eden. And Cain and Abel, after Cain slays Abel, he is kicked off even further to the east into the land of Nod. And the land of Nod means the land of wandering. And as humanity progresses and as the kingdoms of the earth rise, they go further and further and further east. So that the prophets, Ezekiel especially, is promising someday humanity will return from the east with the Messiah. To the east of the temple in Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. And there's a prophecy in Zechariah that the Messiah will come from the east and he will split the Mount of Olives and he will come into his temple and he will proclaim, the Lord is here. And you remember, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus, the night before he is crucified, comes in from the east off of the Mount of Olives into the temple complex. And this is a sign for us that God has come back to Israel and all the peoples of the earth will gather from the east and come back. And the first ones who do it are the Magi. Magi from the east come to Jerusalem. The Magi come home. They seek out the Christ. They come back from their wandering. They're a picture to all of us that any wanderer can come home. He came to seek and save the lost, the wandering. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us. Think of the power of Matthew introducing his gospel that way. It is God with us, not us with God. God coming to be with us, the most powerful sequence of this theme in the Bible is said in three parables in the book of Luke. And we, I preached on this last year. But if you haven't read these parables in order, you're missing something. He starts out by saying, there's a flock of sheep and one goes missing. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And when he finds the one, he brings him back home. And he says, in heaven, there's rejoicing when that happens. And then there was this house where this woman lost a coin, and she went looking everywhere for the coin. And she turned over the whole house, and when she found it, she rejoiced, and she had people over to celebrate that she had found this coin. And then he says, and, and there was this lost son who went out into the far country and spent his father's inheritance on lavish living, and he ended up in a pigsty, and he woke up one day, and he decided to come home. And you know this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. But in the flow of these parables, you always have someone looking for what's going to be found. And they bring it back, and they're celebrating that something has been found. But think about the way the story of the lost son ends. So the son comes home on his own, and his father is looking for him. But his older brother is outside. And he hears the merrymaking, and he hears all the celebrations, and he comes, and his father says, come in for your son. Your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And that's where the story ends. See, Jesus is such a genius teacher, because if you were hearing somebody deliver that, you would wonder, why wasn't anybody looking for the son? Does the brother ever end up coming into the house or not? 
See, these parables were taught to the Pharisees, who were the religious insiders. They were the ones that weren't wanderers. They, they were there. They had stayed there with the Father. They were doing what they thought was right. But Jesus says there's actually a truer and better older brother. This older brother failed his mission, but Jesus came to be the true and faithful older brother who doesn't leave the prodigal son out deciding whether he wants to come home. He's the older brother that goes and gets the prodigal son and brings him back into the family for a celebration. See, the implication, the true end of the story of the prodigal son should be a story where the lost son is found and there is rejoicing in heaven over the son who comes home. That's the gospel story. Jesus says, my mission is to come and seek and save the wanderers. Seek and save the lost. So when Jesus is born and the Magi come, it's, it's like an example from God of what's going to happen time after time after time after time, that people who are wandering are going to be brought into the family of God. It's going to be a great homecoming of people who don't belong at this party, and there will be great celebrations over what God has done. Christ also came for the inquirers, the inquirers. Sometimes in the church we call these seekers, and seekers are people who maybe they're not against God, they're not against the gospel, but they're certainly not for it either. They're keeping an open mind about it. They're asking great questions. They're wondering, they're studying, they're looking for the different truths in the universe that maybe they can arrive at the right truth. This is where the magi are. Okay, the Magi, you have to step back, and this is where things get really interesting. How did they know that they should follow this star? How did they realize that maybe this star was going to lead them to a king? Because when they come to Herod, it's not, hey, there's been this really crazy astrological event. We're not sure what it's pointing to. Could you help us with that? They say, we saw the star of the king of the Jews. Where is he? They had been watching, and they had been waiting. Now, Magi were originally a tribe of people known for magic and dream interpretation. They were a group of people who found their way into royal courts because they knew how to read the stars and tell fortunes and interpret dreams. And in fact, by about the 3rd or 4th century BC, they were royal court advisors in the greatest empires of the world. Think like Merlin in the court of King Arthur, a wizard advisor kind of person. That's, that's what a magi was. They were kingmakers. They could predict the rise and the fall of empires, so it was thought. And they had been studying the skies because there was a prophecy in the first century that there would be a king over all the world that would be born in Judea. Now, this was, like I said already, it was, it was unsettling for the kings of the world, but if you're a kingmaker, that's where you want to be. You want to find this baby who's been born, the king of the Jews. Now, they had been studying. Some people conjecture that maybe because Daniel was in Babylon that maybe they had read the prophets. Maybe they were looking for this Messiah who was coming. We don't know that, but we do know that there's an instance in the Old Testament of this happening. In Numbers chapter 24, we get the story of Balaam. And Balaam is one of the great stories of the Bible. It's where you have the talking donkey who rebukes Balaam. Do you remember this story? So all of a sudden he's going and he's been hired to curse Israel. And on his way, his donkey doesn't want to go. And so he's beating this donkey. And all of a sudden the donkey just pipes up and said, why are you beating me? I'm, I'm trying to do something nice for you. 
And I love it because Balaam, he doesn't even say like, oh my gosh, my donkey is talking. He just says, yeah, but I've told you several times to go. And, and Balaam is on his way to the king Balak. And Balak hires him to curse Israel from the mountaintop. But Balaam, guided by the Holy Spirit, can only bless Israel. And he utters this very strange prophecy. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees a vision of the Almighty, Falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel, and it will crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. These magi are like Balaam, come again. The star that was once far off is now near, and a group of people who had historically been a curse have now been invited to come and partake of the birth of the king. The Magi represent everyone out there who's saying, this is exactly what I've been looking for. I had a friend that we knew each other in college, and he was an atheist, and he was one of those thoughtful atheists who had read a lot of apologetics, he had read a lot of arguments and things, but he was really kind of a worst nightmare to somebody who was trying to share the gospel with him, because he would just eat people up and, and spit them out with all these questions and arguments and everything. And we were really good friends, and I had, I had talked to him about several people who had come and, and regretted sharing the gospel with him, because they, they had been eaten up. And I was talking to him pretty frequently, and I had this dream. And in the dream, it said, you need to show him how to get in the water. We're sitting on this little island, and it was, you need to show him how to get in the water. So I woke up and I started praying about this, and I thought, what, what could that really mean for somebody like him? And it occurred to me that all of the attempts to get this guy to believe had been intellectual and apologetic and trying to defeat the different arguments that he had made, and I just started to wonder if anyone had ever shared with him what the real point of all of this is. So we start to have this conversation. I said, do you know that the center of all of this is not as much about your mind, it's about your heart? That the whole gospel is summed up in this. God loves you, and he wants to be with you. And he sent his son so that your sins can no longer stand in the way of the relationship that you can have with him. The moment you come and worship him, the moment you come and repent, the moment that you come and lay down your life and say, your will be done in my life, you have a restored relationship with God. You can hold on to your doubts. You can hold on to your arguments. But if you come and surrender your heart, God will start to do a work in you that you will not believe. And I don't know that he became a Christian at that moment, but what he said was so interesting. He said, of all the people I've talked to, no one has ever said, God loves me. It's always, I'm sinful, Got that. Know that. Didn't need Christians to tell me that. It's not that there's a problem in the universe. I already understood that. It's not that God is going to judge. It's that he is somehow interested in me. That's the difference maker. This is what the Magi understood. They were outsiders. They were wanderers. They were inquirers. But they realized that they had been personally invited to come and worship the king. 
And this is the last thing we learn. Christ came for worshipers. Christ came for worshipers. The most profound sentence in this story is in verse 11. They see the star, they rejoice exceedingly with a great joy. This is like they're just deliriously happy when they find out where Jesus is. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down on their faces and worshipped him. This is the exemplar moment. It's not will you talk about it. It's not will you be threatened by it like Herod. It's not do you know what's supposed to happen. Are you familiar with the Bible like the scribes. It's will you come and bow down and worship him. That's the invitation that the Magi give us. Now, we learn a lot from what they do, okay? They, they're unexpected guests. You've got to wonder what the conversation went like when they knocked on the door in Bethlehem. They're here. They've got this huge group of people. Can we come in and worship your son? And they bring these gifts. And we learn a lot from the gifts. This maybe is the most famous part of the story. Three gifts. That's why traditionally there have been three wise men, because they bring these three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it says they get down and they open up their treasure boxes, and this is just interesting. That word in Greek is the word thesaurus. It's where we get the word thesaurus, a treasury of words. They open up these treasure chests full of valuable things. But most importantly, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, this, the church has been captivated by these three gifts and seeing the imagery of these three gifts. Why did they bring these things? From the very beginning, there, in fact, there was a very famous hymn writer in the early church named Aurelius Prudentius Clemens, Prudentius for short. And he was born in Spain in 348. And he wrote these words, which are still sung in the Eastern Church today. Earth has many a noble city. Bethlehem dost all excel. Out of thee the Lord from heaven came to rule his Israel. Eastern sages at his cradle make oblations rich and rare. See them give in deep devotion gold and frankincense and myrrh. Sacred gifts of mystic meaning, incense doth their God disclose. Gold the king of kings proclaim, myrrh his sepulcher foreshows. See, the gold is what you would give to a king. And one of the things we learned because they brought the gold is this was treason for them. Do you understand that if you're a kingmaker in the court of Persia and you leave to follow a star and you bow down and worship another king, you are never welcome again. You have now committed treason at the highest level. You have worshiped another king. They have brought their gold, the kingly gift, to someone else. They have a new lord that they serve. The frankincense is something that would have been pretty common in the ancient world because it was used in temple worship. So if you read the Old Testament, you realize there is frankincense and things like it, these, these uh, sensors that they would burn them in so that smoke is going up out of the temple at all times. And the smoke is symbolic of our prayers and our worship rising up to God, ascending to him. And the frankincense is something that, as this hymn says, discloses, right? It, it, it discloses God because you would bring frankincense as an offering for the heavenly God. But the most curious gift is the myrrh. Myrrh is something that you used when people died to prepare them, to embalm them, to give them a proper burial. They are worshiping a living king who came from the heavens, who was born 
to die. How did these magi have such tremendous insight into what the king of kings would bring? We also learn from what they did not do. You notice at the end of the story, they go to Herod in the beginning, and they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they go back a different way. This is so powerful for us. For every person, the birth of Christ presents a choice to get down on our knees and worship him and go back different, to go back a different way. The Magi come, the only requirement of them is that they repent, humble themselves, pull up their robes, get down on their knees, and surrender to the king. And they go back differently. A pastor friend of mine was preaching a series on the Magi and other guests at Christmas, and one of the things he said really struck me. The Magi are actually not the most unlikely guests at the manger or at Jesus' home. The most unlikely guests are us. The fact that we now, 2,000 years later, have been invited on Christmas morning to reconsider what it's like to come and bow down and worship the King of Kings. The fact that we, like them, Gentiles, foreigners, outsiders, have been invited into the family of God. There's a church called Emmanuel Nashville, and they start their service with this little phrase. And I want to send us off this morning. We're going to worship in a minute, but to send you off this morning with this phrase. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, we open our doors with a welcome from Jesus himself, the friend of sinners. That's Christmas. That's the gift of Christmas. You're welcome into the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that gift that we see in the Magi pictures of ourselves, outsiders, foreigners, people who have nothing by birthright, but who've been invited to come and see the baby who is the king. Father, we celebrate this morning in so many ways, but now as we worship, Lord, we too join with the Magi in worshiping the king. Father, we lift our hearts to you this morning, surrendering them. Father, whether we have been Christians for a long time or whether we are also like the Magi, seekers, the one thing you ask of us is to surrender and repent, to turn away and go back differently because now we have your Holy Spirit. So Father, this morning, remind us or bring us to the place of transformation where we too bow and worship and surrender our lives to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to your Son. It's in his name we pray.